Amen. I just enjoy, again, worshiping the Lord this way and in song. And uh, now um, we're going to jump right into the sermon. Um, we don't have uh, a big business meeting or anything coming after this like we did last week. It wasn't really big, small business meeting. Um, our time is always uh, precious, and uh, we do want to have an opportunity for Sunday school uh, to occur. Um, so we want to get through this rather quickly, um, but we also want to do uh, we also want to do due diligence to the passage that we're that we're um, trying to bring out today. And so, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up the Book of Daniel. That's right after the Book of Ezekiel, right before Hosea. Um, he's considered a major prophet. Although, if you had asked Daniel during his life if he was a prophet, he would have said, "No, he's just a child of the living God, a servant." You know, he's a very humble, um, brilliant man. I mean, in fact, Ezekiel said that he was brilliant. Jesus called him a prophet. Um, and so, obviously, he had those elements of brilliance as well as an apostle, uh, I mean, uh, as well as um, uh, humility. Um, and uh, But still, either way, um, God uh, has chosen him for, for that place and for that time. But he's also chosen him to reveal some things that are going to be happening um, in all of in, in the world as we know it. Last week, we talked a little bit about um, the prophetic nature of, uh, of chapter 3. Two. Um, this week we're going to be getting into chapter 3. Now chapter 3 is a neat chapter. It's like an interlude. Um, and I've, I've often looked at this uh, and enjoyed it because, you know, you're rolling along. The story is obviously about Daniel. It's about God, of course, God's supremacy. We've told you uh, last week and the week before that we're dealing with um, the idea that um, that Daniel really is um, a book that's dedicated on the sovereignty of God, the, the central theme of the book, that God is in complete and 100% control. Um, and that is the case. But, but you see, the main characters is obviously Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, and then later on, Daniel and, and Darius, and, and, and so on, all the way to um, uh, Daniel's end of days. Um, and obviously, God is, is, is intermingled himself in this in the form of visions and other things. Um, but in um, this is like an interlude. It's like Daniel's not there. He's not even in the picture, um, and we'll get to that in a few minutes, but th that always brings me the question whenever I read chapter 3 is, where in the world was Daniel? Um, I mean, it's obviously Daniel's story. He's the one that's writing this account, at least uh, up to this point, he's the one that's writing it. Um, you would think that uh, he would at least give us a little commentary, like, while I was on vacation in, uh, you know, in Botswana, uh, this was going on back, in, uh, back in, in, in the land of Babylon, but we don't get that. In fact, it's almost like we get one of these cutscenes. You know, like one minute we're over here with Daniel and he's having a great time. And all of a sudden, you know, we have that transition moment where, where, where it, just, it fades to black and then comes back out. And, and now Daniel's not there. It's just the king. It's just, um, it's just his three friends, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Um, and so it's, it's always one of those, one of those things. I, I wonder where in the world um, was Daniel's friend, was Daniel, even though Daniel's friends was there. But I think it really comes back to verse 49 of the previous chapter where Daniel's says that he made a request to the king um, to appoint Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their um, Babylonian names, to over the administration of the province of Babylon um, while Daniel was at the king's court. And so um, obviously Daniel is he has been elevated to a position of high authority. Um, we, we saw in a previous verse that he was um, set over the affairs um, basically over the entire province. Um, he is uh, was, was given rulership over the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the, the entire um, um, astrological cult, if you will, that um, was uh, the, the seat of the uh, of the of the um, the wise men um, in the area. In fact, that really points right all the way to the story of Jesus when the wise men show up. So obviously, these were important things that Daniel had to be a part of, um, even though Daniel may not have realized it then, and definitely none of the Chaldeans knew what Daniel was doing. They just resented the fact that he was led into their club without them having a say-so in it. And so, you know, all that's going on, but Daniel knew that he was going to be away because this is not like where he can just jump on a Concorde jet, jet uh, you know, fly over to London, handle the president's business, and then fly back to America and be back um, that evening to have dinner with his family. Uh, so this is obvious, it's obviously a situation where uh, with the distances involved and the kingdom that needed to be administrated, that Daniel was going to be away for a while. Um, I remember uh, uh, 
we had a president, or we had a, a few years ago, we had um, some elections where uh, one of our uh, presidential contenders that had happened to serve as Secretary of State and was making a big deal out of the fact that the number of hours that they, and, and the number of days that they were out of outside the United States as the Secretary of State. And it's like they were outside the United States more than they were inside the United States because their duty was to go out to the world and to be the president's eyes and ears and hands and feet um, to the world. So um, that was obvious. I mean, just like it is now, it was then. And so Daniel probably didn't spend, especially in those first few years, when they were trying to shore up the uh, the rulership and all the things that were going on, it's it's quite likely that Daniel spent very little time um, in the capital. And But he wanted to make sure that while he was away, that the king's, the king's business was being handled in an appropriate way. And the best way to do that was to have his friends that he trusted implicitly, his own personal accountability team, his prayer partners, the uh, the other three individuals that were going to stand firm in the face of adversity, he knew that no matter what happened, they would represent him and represent Yahweh to the king and to the people around it while he was gone. And so it was important that Daniel had those people, um, those those individuals secured. Now, I'm not going to read through this whole chapter like, like we've been doing through this um, entire study. Um, we just don't have time uh, to just read straight through the chapter. We're talking um, 30 verses here. There's a lot happening. This is a very common story that's taught to many people that are in church. In fact, almost everybody, whether you're, you've been in church or not, know the story of the fiery furnace. Um, it's just so much part of our of our popular culture that you know you could do a man on the street interview and you can get you can get the basic story of the of the fiery furnace. You may miss some details. You may miss some theological um, importance. Is, but the, the, the main thrust of the story is going to be out there. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we are going to um, sort of go over it and, and break it down as best we can. But I am going to read the first few verses, uh, probably down to verse 6, um, as we set the stage. So this is setting the stage and showing the color of the story, if you will. So Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble um, all of his uh, workers, satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces that come to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king set up. Then all the people showed up and stood before the image, and Nebuchadnezzar the Nebuchadnezzar had set up, verse 3, verse 4, um, then a herald uh, proclaimed loudly, he said, to you the command is given, O peoples and nations and men of every language, that at the moment that you hear the sound, here's the list of music, instruments, right, the sound of the horn, uh, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, or the zither, um, the psaltery, the bagpipes, we'll get to that in a few minutes, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Um, so that's the basic uh, rundown of the beginning of the story. And uh, we know that this is, if you guys have read this many times, I'm sure. Um, but I think there's some interesting facts that we need to bring this about to sort of lay the, the groundwork in the stage um, to, so the thing is set so we know exactly what's going on. First of all, the fact that the king is setting up this statue, um, uh, obviously there's allusions to the, the statue that was in the dream um, that Daniel had translated for the king back in chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar was represented by the head of gold, and then the rest of the statue made up of um, the different nations that would follow. It was obviously a portent to the future. Um, and so now Daniel is, or now Nebuchadnezzar is, is wanting to make this image of gold. Now, first of all, kings building uh, images of gold, um, specifically statues of themselves, um, not uncommon in the old world. In fact, um, with the amount of manpower and wealth that the uh, king of Babylon had, I mean, you have to remember, this is the first Gentile king of the whole world. I want to repeat that if again so you guys don't get this. This is the first time that the entire known world that we're dealing with, the Middle East and, and much of the, um, uh, the western side of the Mediterranean from um, the tip of the Fertile Crescent and beyond, a little farther to the north, all the way down into Egypt and as far west as, as you could go, all the way through the Arabian uh, Peninsula and, and into parts of Asia. So there were, there were, the majority of the world was now run by one guy. And it was the first time 
time that the world had had a Gentile king sit over all of this, all these people. So that's kind of a, a powerful moment if you want to think about that. And so he is natural that he's building statues. I know one commentator asked, "Well, where was Daniel when this when this statue was being conceived and built?" Well, I think I've already addressed that. The fact that Daniel probably wasn't even there, um, and the fact that Daniel wasn't there was not odd. It was completely consistent with the job description that he had. And so, um, the fact that Daniel wasn't there, but you say, well, if Daniel wasn't there, maybe he would have gotten a letter from one of his uh, one of his men, you know, uh, now Mishael, or Zaria, that, that said, hey, Daniel, maybe you need to come home because, you know, there's some things brewing in the palace. The king's getting a little off his rocker. Um, uh, you could, you, maybe you would have said that. But the reality is, again, we go back to the ancient world with all the manpower and money this guy had. Uh, public works was part of it. He built one of the most beautiful cities that's ever been built in the ancient world with the hanging gardens and everything else. I mean, he was putting people to work and putting his money um, uh, into the hands of his community. He was doing what he what a king is supposed to do, is to magnify himself and build himself up. Now, that comes the other thing. Everybody says, well, what is this statue that he built? And I can't count the number of Sunday school teachers and formats and preachers of old that have said that he built the statue um, that looked just like himself. He built a statue of himself. Nowhere in scripture does it say that he built a statue of himself. Um, the king was narcissistic. I have no doubt all kings are. Um, but the fact that he built an image of gold and um, it was, was also pretty narcissistic, you know, to be able to, to lift that up there. But, but to automatically assume that he built this as an image of himself is, um, is a mischaracterization of Scripture. The Bible never says that. It just simply says an image of gold. Um, and so this image of gold that was built, we have the dimensions. It was 60 cubits by 6 cubits. That's basically 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Now, that brings up a lot of questions. Those of you that are math people and engineers and architects, which, you know, I'm not, um, but I've read several that are, will automatically point out, wow, that is incredibly tall and incredibly narrow. Um, and that the base and the height and the way that this is all set up, it would have been really overbalanced. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been right. And it, almost to the point where, like, what kind of architects do we have there in Babylon? There must have been morons to do that. Um, and, and maybe, maybe they were. I doubt it. Um, looking at some of the monuments that have been built that are lasting to this day that were built in this ancient world, I think it's a, a travesty for those of us in the modern world to automatically think that those people that lived back in those days were primitive. These guys had uh, the ability to electroplate gold, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Um, they, were not, they were not foolish. They knew what they were doing. Um, most theologians believe that this statue that was built may have been inspired by the king's dream, but more than likely it was an image of uh, the king's god, Marduk. Um, and it didn't necessarily have to be a statue of a man, even though those are almost always the depictions you see within our Sunday school classes is this giant statue of a man. But nowhere does it say it's a statue of a man. It just said an image of gold. Um, and it was incredibly tall, incredibly narrow. Most people think that based upon the architecture of the day that it was probably some sort of an obelisk or a or, or like a giant pillar, and somewhere um, up on the pillar, as the pillar went up high, um, uh, it would have been uh, in the image of, of the god, or or possibly the king. I'm not ruling it out. It might have been the king's vision. We just don't have a guidance in scripture. Um, and it would have been uh, it would have been plated in gold, and so it would have been more like a uh, more like a tower or a pillar um, with the image on top of it. Uh, one fellow actually suggested that it might have been a platform because back in those days they measured the height of the statue based upon the platform, um, starting from the bottom of the platform all the way to the top of the statue. So um, it would have been completely consistent for them to measure the platform and the statue too. And some actually have suggested that it was a tall platform with an image um, like the bust and the head of the statue of the god um, sitting on top of it. Either way, it was huge. And you could see it from a long way off. And the Bible says it was covered in gold. Um, or it was gold. It says golden image. Back in those days, just like in Scripture, um, when Scripture talks about the altar um, and the mercy seat and um, and the Ark of the Covenant, those were all boxes that were overlaid in gold, which was a very common way of doing things. So they would have either, they would have either overlaid it or back in those days they had the ability to electroplate. We found batteries and 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 lots of other things that were in the archaeological record that proved that they were doing this. Um, one way they did that's just one one of the ways they did to cover it in gold. Either way, they covered it all with gold, so it shone from a long way off. You have this giant image that was put on the plains of Dura, which would have been outside the, the city gates. Some people rec um, uh, uh, suggest maybe.
maybe as much as about 10 or 15 miles away from the city. Um, and that brings up another question of when did this all happen? Um, I know we were talking in our Sunday school class and Brother Mike was teaching last week where we were sort of previewing this chapter with, um, with the Sunday school class that one of our, one of our uh, members had suggested that they had always thought that this happened about 16 or 20 years after the dream. Um, but that's not exactly the case. See, there's more going on here than just simply an, uh, the narcissistic wishes of a king to be worshipped or, or the king wanting his god to be elevated above the other gods, um, there is something else that was happening here, and something that I think is important, and it goes back to the very beginning of the, of the nation of Babylon, when Nebuchadnezzar was crowned. Nebuchadnezzar had a battle. He had a battle on, on August 16th of uh, 605 BC. We had that exact date firm and in stone in the archaeological record. We know exactly when the Battle of Carchemish happened, where the empire was formed, where Babylon became the empire that it was, where Pharaoh Necho was killed, and, and as the other major superpower in the world was destroyed and Babylon became the sole ruler of everything. Um, it was a big moment. And so he was crowned king right after that. And, um, and then a few years after that, there was a major revolt. The revolt happened in 596 BC. So about nine, ten years after the crowning of the king um, that happened. And it was a big revolt and had to be put down. Some of the, some of the leaders in the revolt were part of his military, part of the um, the bureaucrats, people that he couldn't trust, he knew he couldn't trust, um, that had this revolt. And so now the king is in a situation where he's already destroyed and put down the revolt. So it's probably about anywhere between 11, 10, 11, 12 years after the events, um, after his, his coronation, probably 10 years after the dream that this took place. Now these are all, these are all um, opinions. There's nothing in scripture that proves exactly we don't have a good timeline. So it's quite possible it was 16 or 20 years later and honestly this statue didn't get built in a minute um, it took a few it took a year or so maybe or I would assume to build a statue like this so um, the idea that it was built in that time frame was was about consistent where it was but the king was doing this as a test of loyalty the king wanted to after this revolt was over with he needed to shore up those that, that, that he leaned upon to run and administer his country. He didn't want any more revolts. He didn't want to have to go to battle and kill his own people and to, um, and to spend his entire um, reign as king with a sword in his hand, putting down rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. So he had to have all these people come to the capital um, to have a oath of office. I find it interesting yet again that while he demanded all of these folks to come and to bow down before this statue as an oath of office, as a loyalty test, there was one person he didn't demand to come back, and that was Daniel. Daniel was never demanded to come back. Daniel was out doing the business of the king. He could have simply, the king could have simply said, Daniel, you're my man. I need you back here. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta lead the way in this test of uh, loyalty for my people because I don't want to have any more revolts. He could have said that, but he didn't. And the truth of the matter is, is and this is the most beautiful thing about Daniel, is Daniel lived 80 years um, in captivity, pretty much, right thereabouts. You know, and in that time, he was a constant and consistent witness for God. Every single thing he did was always for for the glory of God. Always for the glory of God. And even when he was serving the king Nebuchadnezzar and doing his wishes as a chief of staff and chief of state, um, he was still doing it to bring glory to God. He was clear from the beginning that God was his ultimate um, person he was worshiping and serving. And so that's all taking place. Daniel's not there. Um, and we see that um, he conceives the idea. And the other thing is, you know, it's like a lot of people have given the idea, uh, the commentators and such, that there is these evil um, advisors that were pushing the king uh, to build this statue. But there's also no indication at all in scripture that anybody had this idea. In fact, I almost kind of think that this was the king's idea alone. That he didn't consult anybody about this. He just had a statue built for himself, put it out there in the plains, and then he asked everybody to come in for that inauguration, like a big party day. And it's, that, it's at that point that he actually sprung um, the uh, uh, you know sprung it on him. He said, "At this point, we're gonna we're gonna make this happen." You know, um, we're going to have you guys worship this statue for as a test of loyalty. But either way, that all happened. He brought he brought his governors in. Look at the the names that we have there. We have a whole bunch of um, different uh, job descriptions, much larger than the original list of advisors that we have back in chapter um, chapter two. 
And so we see satraps and prefects, governors and counselors. Understand this is all written in Aramaic and almost every one of these words are Persian and Aramaic words. They're not even words that were used um, in, the, in the Hebrew at all. Some of them are Greek words that were co-opted and brought in. But all of them were consistent with the archaeological record of what was happening. He brings all these guys in that were his rulers and, and the individuals that, that, that were his bureaucracies. Um, the ones that, that, that worked directly for him. Now, um, he did that, and then and it was then in verse 4. Notice it was in verse 4 when, when it's like the king almost sprung it on him. Okay? They're all gathered, except Daniel, and they're all standing before the king. They're all standing before this image. They're on the plains, and they're all expecting you know, some good buffet, some good food, some good time, some dancing, some, some partying, right? Because they don't all get together. It's like a big, giant convention of all the leaders in the, in the community um, or in the, in the kingdom. And, um, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, the king throws this proclamation out. He says, dude, you're going to have to bow or burn. Bow down to this, or you're going to burn. Now, look what it says there in the, verse, uh, in the verse 6. It says, whoever doesn't fall down and worship will immediately be cast into the furnace, the fiery furnace, right? And so he's throwing it out there. And then he, he look at the list of, of instruments that, that we have. Now, depending upon the, the version you have, I know um, the King James has a variety of different uh, words that are used, and New American, NIV, the rest of them, they all, they all change just a little bit. And the reason why is because these words are all Greek. And, um, uh, and Aramaic uh, words that were used to define instruments that we may or may not actually use anymore. I heard one, uh, one preacher talked about it, and he was going through the list, and he says, what a horrible list of instruments. You know, that's the music they would have played would have been ungodly and terrible, and then he went on to use that as the basis of, of the rest of the sermon, uh, the idea that this was all basically a, a horrible, disjointed thing from conceived from the mind of a wicked king, and I don't deny the fact that it was conceived in the mind of a wicked king, but but I, I, I find it hard to believe that it was bad music. Um, it was just, it was it was music. Um, in fact, the one word that we use um, that's in there, the word in the New American Standard that's translated bagpipe, again, it's not really a bagpipe, um, the word there is symph uh, symphony. It's the Greek word we get symphony. It's, it's basically um, all of these instruments were drawn, drawn together. Um, one of the other words uh, that I think is interesting, that word bagpipe um, that's translated symphony, another way that it was used in the old in the old days was drums, and so you know a lot of people have asked me, well, what instruments should we have to worship? And, and 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 a lot of times people have an agenda when they ask that question. They they say, well, because in the back of their mind they're saying that everybody knows that that the only way to worship God is with a pipe organ, and we don't have a pipe organ, right? Uh, but we do have an organ, but we hardly ever use it. And the other people say, well, we can only use a piano. And I I would say, well, the piano really wasn't part of uh, worshiping until you know um, like the 1800s in the area, you know, before that it was in bars and no one would ever bring an instrument that was used in the bars into a, a house of worship but yet here it is and uh, now and and some people say well nobody nobody believes that we should be worshiping with drums or guitars and but yet that's what they did right here you can see it um, the words there lyre is the word um, in Aramaic that means zither is basically it was it was the Babylonian equivalent of, of a guitar um, you had uh, the other instruments that were there the trigon the psaltery these are all stringed instruments along with the woodwinds and the flutes and the other stuff. The, the, the point of the matter was is that the king was demanding a symphony-like orchestra to strike up this music and when this music came out then that's when everything would begin. And you know the rest of the story he said in verse 7 um, it says therefore that time when the people heard the music they all bowed down except for yes you guessed it those three guys Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego was their hero was their uh, Babylonian names, and their unwillingness to bow was noticed by individuals. And that comes to like the first major section that we want to deal with, which is verse 8, and that is the accusation. Look what it says here. It says, for this reason, at that time, um, certain Chaldeans, there's those Chaldeans again, came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Um, so a lot of people think this all happened in one afternoon. More than likely it didn't. More than likely this was a long event, and that um, based upon the language of every time you hear the music play, you 
bow down, that it wasn't a single time that they bowed. It was a multiple time through ceremonies and other rituals and, and maybe uh, food and, and just uh, just a party-like atmosphere was there. And then all of a sudden, the, the party would stop, the music would play, everybody would bow down, and then they'd go back to doing what they were doing. So um, it probably was taking several days back in those back in that day that, you know, even a wedding party usually lasted a week. Um, so... You know, there was a constant idea that there was a party that was happening. Um, and during that time, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Hanani, Azaria, and Mishael, um, all four of those guys, all three of those guys, were uh, consistent in not bowing before this image. And so the accusation was brought. And it's interesting who brought the accusation, the Chaldeans. Now, we've talked about this before. The Chaldeans was a, was a hereditary, hereditary position of authority within the government. They were, they were a, a, a very closed and secretive club and the fact that Daniel was placed as their head was something that was, uh, that was incredibly vexing to them. And so they, really, they absolutely hated the fact he was there. Rather than enjoying the fact that they are continuing to be alive because Daniel was faithful to God, they chose to look for opportunities to destroy him. These were, the, these were in many ways probably friends and um, colleagues of um, Hanani Azaria and Mishael, um, as well as Daniel. People that are, they would see every day, friends that they would have had dinner with. Um, this, wasn't a, um, this wasn't just a, a, a common thing. This was a big deal that was happening. And so um, when they turned him into the king, look what they said, O king, live forever. This is the accusation. O king, live forever. That's a standard greeting. Um, he goes, you made the decree, but we got a problem. Not everybody is doing this. Look at verse 12. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's their Babylonian names. Um, I want to pause here just for a second and give you a bit of history. Again, you know, the color on this is important. Um, but it's also important to know that regardless of the fact that um, that Daniel is um, a is a very controversial book because it truly is a book of prophecy. Um, but there, it's one of the most contentious books, but it's also one of the books that every time they try to find fault with it, there is more evidence that comes up in the archaeological record to prove that, that Daniel was writing the truth, events that actually happened. Um, and currently, right now, in, um, in a museum... Uh, is uh, this actually is taking place? This museum is actually, I think, in um, in London, but I could be mistaken on this. There is a five-sided uh, clay prism um, that was found during. Well, I take it back. Now it's in the Istanbul Museum, um, and on there it gives a list of names of of the men that were serving the king um, Nebuchadnezzar during that time. And in there, they found in this official list, they found a guy named Ardi Nabu, which is the direct equivalent Arab name of Abednego. He was given the title of the official of the royal prince. He was the guy that would have been like the cupbearer to the king. He would have been pretty close to the king. There was another one that was found in the list um, is a man named Hananu, um, which would be the um, uh, Babylonian equivalent of the Hebrew name Hananiah. He was given the name commander of the king's merchants. And then the third name on that list that um, is, is part of the story was a fellow by the name of Mishalem Marduk. And if you drop off the name Marduk, you get Mishalem, which is the Aramaic name for Mishael, which is the um, Hebrew name of, um, of uh, Meshach. And um, uh, he was given the official, um, he was known as an official to Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so you've got these three guys that potentially were real people, according to the historical record, um, and they were sitting there uh, 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 serving the king, and they were not going to worship the king's gods. And the king was made aware of it. The king got angry. And so you get this rage. So you have the accusation in verse 8. You have the rage of the king, um, Nebuchadnezzar. He raged. Now remember the, 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 remember the, the fact that the, the command was, if you didn't do it, you would immediately be thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, um, let's see what happens. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and anger, gave orders that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. So Hanani, Meshach, and Azari were brought up to be in front of the king. Now the king, according to his own commandments, should have said, that's it, you didn't do it, in the fire you go. But yet, even in his rage, God is still in control, right? And even in his rage, he still allowed Nebuchadnezzar the ability to respond to these guys in, in, a, in a rather coherent way for a guy that's raging. He says, is it true? Did you not do this? Are you not serving my gods? 
Why have you not done that? He goes, look, yeah, you probably didn't notice. I know it's been busy. You're doing my work. I get that. But, but just so you didn't realize what was going on, I had this little commandment, right? And I've got this big giant uh, statue over here, and I'm going to have the music play in a few minutes. So in case you've overlooked it, just to prove to everyone else that you truly are loyal, that you're my men, you're my guys, I'm going to do this, and I want you to bow down in front of everybody, right? I, just go ahead and do it. Get it over with. That's, that's basically the way that he's saying it. And you see the response. Um, he just said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. Look at verse, uh, verse 15. Actually, verse 17. Um, uh, oh, and there's something else I want to point out in verse 15. It says, and, and in the end, he says, if you don't do this, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And then he says, what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? Again, he's kind of fooling himself. He's a bit narcissistic. Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do, not, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Um, oh, goodness. Uh, if, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. We're not going to bow down. We're not going to do it. Um, and I'm sorry that you've, uh, you've, you're going to all this trouble, but um, you don't need to worry about it. We can tell you right now, our God is going to be able to take care of this. We are not going to follow your king. We're going to follow our own God, and we're going to do it. And so that's the response. And again, we get that response, which is a central theme of this book. In verse 17, it says, If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able. He is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire. It reminds me very much from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 2, where it says, when you walk through the flames, you will not be burned. The fires will not consume you. And they were standing on that. Now, that comes to the question. You see, the, the Hebrews believed with all their heart that God could, but not necessarily would, spare their lives. Um, and this is an important thing. And this is, the, I think, the pertinent lesson that we can draw from this today. Obviously, there's a lot of lessons we can draw from this, um, but this is one of the big ones that I really want to push forward so you guys can just grasp onto this. Um, and that is that, that while God is capable, the Hebrews believe this, that he could, um, he could save them, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he would. Look at the response in verse 18. He says, but even if he does not, O king, let it be known to you that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He says, our God is able, we have no doubt. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship you. Because we know that ultimately our hands are in the hands of God. And the only way, O king, this is the other thing he's saying, the only way, O king, that you're going to be able to kill us is if God lets you. Because he's in control. And this is something I think that's, that's important for all of us. You know, this is the question that a lot of people ask. Does God have all power? Is he not all powerful? Yes, he is. Is God able to deliver believers from all the problems and trials they face? Yes, he is. Does, but does God deliver from believers from all their trials and tribulations? The answer is no. No, he doesn't. A lot of times God allows trials to come into our lives to build character, to glorify himself, to bring us to a place that we can better serve him and be more used by him. You know, a lot of times we think we know more than God. And we'll fall down on our face, oh dear Father, please take this a burden from me, it's too much. And when God says no, our faith is shaken. But we don't always realize why God is saying this. You know, when, when I got the call about my mother that she was um, dying, um, you know, I hadn't really spoken to my mother in a number of years. Uh, we weren't on good terms. I was frustrated with her. She was frustrated with me. There were some issues. And my mother was um, like 62. She wasn't very old. She had been um, disabled um, on, on the job when she was um, much younger. She had been a nurse, and she had been vital and working. And, um, and after she got injured, uh, she had a patient that fell on her, crushed her neck, and she just was never able to be completely pain-free. And in the process of it, um, the, uh, the, one of the diseases that had been part of, her, um, part of her body for a long time, probably the reason why her neck was so weak to begin with, was the disease lupus. My mother is all the knowledge that she had, just didn't realize how dangerous lupus was. And her doctors had not treated it like they should have. And in the end, the lupus ate her lungs up 
And she called me. Um, she had only about 10% of her lung capacity. And the doctors had given her just weeks to live. And she wanted me to come and see her. She, wanted, uh, she didn't want to go into eternity facing the frustration, with the frustrations between her and I, um, left unresolved. And I appreciated that. We went there. We were able to find forgiveness, both her and I. We were able to move forward, have a wonderful time of, of, of reunion. Um, and, you know, she asked me why, you know, why God doesn't just heal her. And um, she thought maybe that she would not been faithful in some areas, that maybe she had not been doing all the things that God wanted her to do. You know, she had tried to teach Sunday school. She tried to do a few other things. And, you know, she always tried to serve God, but she just wasn't able to um, in many areas. And in some of the churches that she served in, because she smoked, um, she wasn't considered uh, acceptable to teach children. And so there were some issues there with her. And, and she felt like um, that that kind of legalism was the reason why that she had this disease and was dying. And I had to tell her that's not the case. And then I pointed out to her, I asked her, I said, how many people have you told um, since you've been in this hospital room, how many people have you told about Jesus? And she says, every single person that comes in. And I said, I know, I've watched you since I've been here. Every time someone comes in that you don't know, you tell them about Jesus. My mother started off by saying, hey, do you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior? That was her opening question whenever somebody came in a room. And they would look at her funny. She says, don't give me that funny look. He goes, I'm dying here. In a few weeks, I'm going to be with Jesus. I want you to be there too when it's your time. And she had the opportunity to witness literally hundreds of people that came in and out of her room. Doctors, uh, custodians, everybody, nurses, aides, everyone that came into her room, she was able to witness to. Now, I don't, can't say that God gave her the disease, but I know that God allowed the disease to progress and did not heal her. And ultimately, he did it for his reasons and his reasons alone. And I may not know fully the full extent of all the reasons why God did that until I step into glory, but I have to have faith that he did it for a reason. The Bible talks about that in Romans chapter 5. There is a purpose for the trials. We may not always understand them, but God simply asks his children, us, to trust him even when it's not easy. Just as Job endured incredible suffering and exclaimed in Job 13, even though he slay me, God will slay me, yet I will hope in him. That's Job's words to God about God because of the tribulations he was going through. And although God does not guarantee that we his followers will never suffer or experience death, he does promise that he'll always be with us during those trials. And that comes to the best part of this story, which is the, the last part of the story. We talked about the response of the three, of the three young men, um, which is a the central theme of the book. And then we get um, uh, verses 24 uh, down to 27, which is the deliverance. We see that happening. Now, some things to lead up to that. This is a powerful moment in the life of, um, of what was going on here. The, the, the men were, um, were gathered together. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. The Bible says his countenance or his facial expression was changed. Basically, his heart was hardened towards them. And he, had, he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it normally is. Basically, that's a, that was an Aramaic idiom, a statement of, of a turd of phrase that literally meant that, um, that he wanted to heat it as hot as possible. Now, these furnaces were, were large. They were, they were um, um, uh, probably the size of a small building. Um, some of the pictures we have in the cuneiform drawings, um, that picture like an old-fashioned milk bottle that sort of uh, narrowed at the, at the, in the neck and they fluted out at the top and was wide at the base and, um, and they had an opening in the bottom where they would feed uh, the flames uh, with the fuel and then at the top was where they would put the ore that would be melted down and that they would be smelted and pour them out. But then more than likely this was a brick kiln which was very common back in those days to heat the bricks so they can make their the massive building projects that Nebuchadnezzar had. And um, if that's such a case it was probably a large square building that was heated up um, and it was incredibly hot. It was sometimes get so hot that the, the bricks on the outside the stone on the outside would actually start to glow with the heat that was there. Um, and it was heated up pretty hot. In fact it was so hot that when the men went to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. Um, they were killed instantly just by throwing them in. But look at something else that was, um, that was said about them. That um, not only were these, these, these valiant warriors in verse 20, these strong individuals who were part of the army bound them up, but they were tied in verse 21. They were tied their trousers, their coats, 
their hats and all their other clothes were tied together and they were thrown in. There's a reason for this. See, most of their clothes were linen. They were single clothes, wool possibly. We know this, this stuff is flammable. And let me tell you something. I have worked in the hospital. I've spent time in the burn units. I have ministered to people that have been burnt head to toe um, in various areas. And I'm going to tell you this. There is nothing worse than having a burn, but having a burn so badly that the clothes you're wearing melts and sticks to your skin. Um, and I've had uh, numerous individuals that I uh, ministered to or worked with over the years that had that situation happen to them. And it's a horrible thing. And I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to make anybody ill, but it's just gross. It's nasty. Um, the idea that, that their clothes would just almost instantly at this temperature catch on fire. And you say, what's how hot was it? Um, some people estimate that it could be as hot as 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's an incredible amount of heat that was going on. And they were tossed into this furnace. They were bound, and their clothes were all there. They would have instantly ignited into flames. They would have, it would have been the most excruciating, horrible way to die. Um, and they were thrown into the fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar, um, something happened. <laughs> as you can imagine, because you know the story. Um, the, he was thrown in there. But I want to stop just and give you another aside um, about this whole furnace thing. Um, a lot of times we look at the furnace as being something that is um, ugly and something that is used for torture. And in this case, it was intended that way. But we also have to remember this word furnace that was used, um, the word there is actually a tune in, in the Aramaic. And what it, it literally means, a furnace or a forge. Okay, And let me tell you something. Furnaces or forges weren't always instruments of torture. In fact, almost always in Scripture and other areas, um, they were described as instruments where things of usefulness and great beauty came out of. I mean, think about it for a minute. Um, every major beautiful thing that was made of metal um, in that time frame was put into a hot furnace like this and drawn out and, and made such beautiful pieces of art and so or usefulness. And so I, I would have to tell you this, before you go jumping all on the whole furnace thing, remember that sometimes God uses forges and furnaces to create things um, useful and uh, things of, of great beauty. And that's sometimes what he's doing with us. So when we're going through the furnace or the forge, it's, it's usually for our benefit so that God will ultimately be glorified and that we will come out being more beautiful and more useful than we ever were before. Just be thinking about that as we move on. Now, um, you know the end of the story. We're coming to the end of the sermon, so I don't, I don't have a whole lot of time left to, um, to read to deal with this, but um, you see the king jumps up. The Bible says in verse 24 that um, the Nebuchadnezzar stood up in haste. That word that is used there um, is, 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 is he just, it's like he stood up so swiftly, but you have to know the kings, first of all, didn't move fast back in those days. They were the, they were the rocks that never moved or wiggled or did anything. They always showed their strength and character by their by their willingness to move slow. Um, so the fact that he jumped up in haste was something that was was really uh, amazing. Um, it's the word there is hate bahal. It, it literally means he jumped up and was totally astonished and swiftly moved, um, which would have completely shook up everybody around him. And he says, "Look, I see. Didn't we throw? Didn't we throw three guys in the fire? Well, how come I see four? And here's the part that every one of us knows. And what we said a few minutes ago, that yes, God will often allow us to go through fire, trials and tribulations, but he's promised us in the New Testament that he would stick closer to us than a brother. And he proved to us in the Old Testament that that was the case. For while Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were thrown into the fiery furnace, he was there with them. Now... There's a lot of debate as to what uh, what was actually seen there by Nebuchadnezzar. Now he says, and the King James says the Son of God, um, but you have to know that the Aramaic and the way it was written, um, it did not mean Son of God um, in, the, in, the, in the way we would understand it. It literally means Son of the Gods or a Son of the Divine. Um, in, in a polytheistic um, environment where you have so many different gods, he would have said a child of the gods. Somebody that had the power of divinity to be in there. Um, in, in so many of the Jews who were commenting on this verse later on after it was written by Daniel, um, uh, would mention that it was actually uh, what it was actually saying was an angel of God. Um, now, I personally believe, and I think most theologians today believe that that was a pre-incarnate vision or version of Jesus Christ. 
um, although one of the one of the rabbis that were pretty popular used to say that it was um, the angel Gabriel because he was the angel that was mentioned later on in this book. Um, either way, it doesn't matter. It was a representative representative of God on high, and he was definitely there with them. And because he was there with them, because the power of God was there, they were there. There they did this as their their bonds were burnt up, but their their clothes were untouched. They didn't even have the smell of of sulfur and burn fire on them uh, when they stepped out. And the king um, saw this. He called out. He said, hey, you guys, come out here. Get out of there. And they did. And they came out, and that's when the king made that proclamation. And this comes to the end. So, And this comes to our final part of it, which is their triumph, um, which is the proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar gave. He said he responded um, uh, by them coming out, and uh, he turned to all of his governors and all the people that were there, and he responded, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their, who, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies, so as not to serve and worship any god except their own god. And then he went on to deliver that proclamation. He was, he was pretty powerfully uh, on favor of the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And all this is a great statement, and although I said last week, I firmly believe that I'll be seeing Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, I do not feel that Nebuchadnezzar has yet come to Christ as, um, as a believer. He still is not a believer in the one true God. He's still not quite there, but this is another case, another, another piece of evidence is going to be used uh, to bring that about. And so that's kind of where we're at right now in this whole um, uh, grand scheme of things um, is that Daniel is, uh, I mean not Daniel, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being elevated to another position of authority, to that greater degree of loyalty because even though they were not willing to bow before the king, the king recognized that, that they were still firmly behind him. And that's an important thing. So there's their triumph. So it comes down to our final question where we have to ask ourselves, well, what does this mean? How do we apply this to our life? The first thing we need to look at is the most important outcome is that we need to recognize that everything that happens in the universe is ultimately to bring glory to God. Daniel and his friends lived a life that brought glory to God. Note, if you will, the praise that, that Nebuchadnezzar renders to the God of heaven. You see that in verses 28 and 29, we read that. He says, I'm going to make a decree. Nobody's going to speak bad about, the, about these guys' gods, or I'm going to destroy them. You know, he's going to lift up the followers of the one true God, even though at this point he's not there yet. Um, and this is how our faith should work. We should be willing to praise God this way. Jesus mentions this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that our, that our faith and our work should be that, that we are uh, set here to be able to be a praise to God by our faith and by our works. So then I guess we have to ask ourselves, well, what kind of faith do we have? You know, what kind of faith do we show? I heard one person say to me, you know, Pastor, I've got a, the, the gift of faith. And I'm like, you know, be careful what you say. Because you start making those claims, that's when God starts putting you to the test. To see just how faithful you really are. And I've heard other people say, well, Pastor, I don't have the gift of faith. Well, maybe that is a spiritual gift to a great level. But we all have a degree of faith because we have the Spirit of God within us. If you are a believer of the one true God, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have faith because you have the Holy Spirit within you. But what kind of faith do you have? Is it maybe like a spare tire, something we only use in the case of an emergency? Right, and and some of you, you start wondering. I mean, those of you that 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 have that have gone through the whole spare tire routine, right? Where we've had our car break down on us, and we're on the side of the road, and we got a flat tire, and we start looking around the car, and some of us don't even know where the spare tire is located or how to get it off the car. I've had a couple cars like that where I had a car and I had bad tires, and I wasn't able to get them changed fast enough, and I had to pull my my spare off, and I had no idea what shape my spare is in. And I had like this weird tool that I had to find to be able to lower the, the spare tire that was tucked up underneath the bottom of the car down to the ground and pulled off a wire so I could stick it on my car. You know, uh, but is that the kind of faith we want to have that we only use in the case of emergency? Maybe we have a wheelbarrow and that's the kind of faith that we have. You know, it's, it's easily upset and you got to keep pushing it. Think about it for a minute. Maybe our faith is like a... Like a, like a public bus. We only ride it when it's going our way. Hmm. I think what Scripture is telling us is that we need to have the kind of faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
that we need to be committed to serving the Lord and demonstrating to Him consistently and constantly um, who God is in our life. And we need to look at how we're going to uh, how we're going to how we're going to do this. How are we going to serve our God? I know some of you may be sitting here either at home or, or here in the building that, that um, uh, you're asking yourself, you know, that's a great thing and, and, and I, I don't really have that kind of faith and I've never really accepted Christ as my Savior and I've got a, a lot of issues in my life that, that and a lot of you, and it's a pastor, you just don't know what kind of furnaces I'm going through. No, I don't know the kind of furnaces all of you are going through, but I know someone who does. That's Jesus Christ. I guarantee you, the book of Hebrews says there's no temptation that mankind can go through. There's no experience that we can go through that Jesus doesn't understand and went through himself as he lived here as a human being. Everything, he, everything we go through is something that he understands completely because he walked through it himself. And he's promised to walk through it with us now. He's given us the Holy Spirit to reside within us. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, if you have no hope, if you're sitting there today and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way that I am going to, that, 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 that God can save me, I'm telling you that's not true. He can, He will, He wants to. You just have to fall down on your face, bow your will before Him, and acknowledge you're a sinner and be willing to accept, it in, accept Him into your heart as, as your Savior. You have to recognize that He died on the cross for you. The Bible says that if we believe that he died for us if we accept the fact that we're a sinner and repent if we're willing to bow our hearts and our wills before a holy God then he will save us so if you don't know Jesus Christ your Savior please don't leave here today without getting your heart right if you do know him and you know him well I would encourage you I would encourage you to have a faith like Daniel's friends have a faith like Daniel have the kind of faith that can face the furnace and come out the other side. Because I guarantee you, if you live for any length of a time as a Christian, you're going to face the furnace. And you've got to ask, will you go through the furnace with Jesus, or will you be burned up inside because you refuse to turn to him? So, that's it. We're laying it down in front of you. It's on you now to make a decision where you want to go. I would encourage you. The altar is going to be open here if you're online worshiping with us. In a few moments, we're going to have the music play. And once the music's over with, the service will be at an end. But you can always reach out to us through private messenger to the church or some of the individuals that may be watching um, on the feed. And um, I, I please I encourage you, please reach out to someone, um, either somebody you've seen on this here or myself or, or someone you know that knows the answers to the questions in your heart. But don't let today end without turning your heart to him. For the rest of us, please don't leave here today without getting your heart right. Let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the privilege to be able to serve you. Lord, we just come now in front of you just in, in, in abject need, Lord. We know that we are sinners saved only by your grace. Lord, we ask that you'll give us uh, the kind of faith and strength we need to stand like Daniel's friends, regardless of the trials and the tribulations that may come in front of us. And Father, help us to serve you and to seek you and to honor you. Lord, I just thank you so much for all the many blessings you pour out upon us. Give us the strength and courage to stand firm before you. Lord, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that does not know you as their, as their Savior, Father, I ask that you don't let the day end without their heart getting right before you, that they might be able to solve the situation today, that they may be able to spend eternity with you. God, we love you and we thank you and we ask all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Um, like I said, uh, we're going to go ahead and worship. I invite those of you that are here to stand. The rest of you, uh, you're ready to uh, the final song. And uh, the altar will be open. Um, and I encourage you to respond as the Holy Spirit urges you to. Um, thank you. Let's pray.